This week on Writers Inc. To me, the starting point is simple. The, the, the two novels that I've co-authored are all focused around Bram Stoker's writing of Dracula. So it's analyzing all of the material that he used, his notes, the Dracula typescript, the journal I found of his, and also what other people have said about him. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Zach, what are you excited about? Nothing. (laughs) I'm excited about nothing. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome back right. to the uh, Raiders Inc. podcast where we talk about the weather, JD's houses, and nothing that Zach is excited about. I'm half vaccinated. <laughs> oh, congratulations. I got my first vaccination yesterday. I only had to wait for two and a half hours. So luckily I love to read. So I just had my Kindle with me and did a lot of that. Wh- which so. one did you get? Uh, the, it was the Pfizer. They didn't give you the choice though. It's just like, that's just what they had. So um, but yeah, it was, it-, it was the Pfizer. They didn't tell me until right before they were about to stick me. So. Does it seem odd to you guys that that's a thing now? Like we, we all know what vaccine we're getting or we're asking that question. Like, it, I don't know if you've ever got a flu shot in the past or any of those kind of things, but I couldn't tell you who made that. Like it could be some woman in her kitchen in, in Cleveland for all I know. Yeah. But like, you know, <laughs> everybody is told, yeah, everybody is totally on top of, of every manufacturer for, for this virus, you know, vaccine. Yeah. It's a bit weird. And, and it's all like, because they're having them, these sites at like big stadiums and stuff almost imagining like a, a rock and roll show where there's like <laughs> there's some some guy out on the street corner like selling a bootleg version of the vaccine for <laughs> no, no, line, awesome. man, no line <laughs> if i pull up and there's some dude with selling t-shirts or something you like, know like hey, I got hey, the hey buddy over here <laughs> that would be that'd be hilarious so yeah yeah it was it was i was actually uh it was nice to see a very long line that means that a lot of people were getting it so um most of the people in the cars around me were old but whatever i might have been the youngest person there getting the vaccine we're kind of divided here in in my house like i'm I'm gonna get it for sure um because i've got some health issues and i shake so many hands and that kind of thing i just i want to get it um but my wife is pretty sure she's not going to um you know, and about half of our neighbors are getting it. Um, the other half aren't. So th- that kind of surprised me. I just figured this is one of those things everybody would just, would just jump on board with and, and just do. No. I don't want to get you in trouble, JD, but uh, our house is similarly divided uh-huh. <laughs> along the same lines. And uh, it's causing some friction. Uh, are, oh, are you really? Get, yeah. Uh, See, my I, wife already got both shots. So Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah I, I'm wondering, like, you think that's going to cause some friction for you, JD? I don't think so. I mean, because honestly, it's just a, a difference of opinion. I mean, I've, I've got, you know, we've talked about this before. I'm like one Snickers bar away from being diabetic, um, which is crazy because I exercise like crazy and I eat really healthy, but my blood sugar has just always been really high. Um, and, I, and I take a blood pressure medication, but I take like the absolute bottom, you know, like the lowest possible dose that they can prescribe. Um, but, you know, so like I'm right there on the edge of some of these these signs. And, you know, I, and I do meet so many different people, you know, that I, you know, people that I don't know, like I'm constantly, you know, in a normal world, I'm in a lot of crowds of, of 
of random strangers. So I feel I need to get it. Um, you know, and our daughter, you know, being three and a half, you know, obviously that's not even in the cards right now. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. But like, I've never gotten a flu shot before. Like I've never been the, yeah, you know, I never get it either. Yeah. So I don't know. There's just something about this one that just feels like it, you know, I, I need to do it. It just um, feels like a different thing. Yeah. 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 Um, my wife was just what, I mean, she was like, Hey, are you going to get it? And I was like, I don't know. She was like, cool. Like there was, she would, she didn't carry either way. But then I just kind of decided, I was like, I, I may as well get it, especially since we're planning on traveling and stuff this year. I was like, may as well just go ahead and do it. So, but now I haven't grown any extra fingers or toes or anything since yesterday. <laughs> so I think I'm good. So. Yeah. That's the other thing that, that keep like my electrician told me he just got his second shot the other day and he was here yesterday. And, and you know, like the other question you always ask is like, well, did you have any kind of reaction? You know, like the, and any kind of weirdness and, and he didn't, but like, I've got other people, you know, one of our contractors, his father got one and it, it took him out of the, you know, he was in bed for like a day and a half, you know, it just knocked him on his ass. Um, so yeah, yeah my wife's different. foot swelled up. Huh? Weird. Yeah. But huh. it wasn't that bad. So, so who knows? So what yeah. else is going on with you guys? Well, we had a, we had a book bub past weekend. Zach, you want to give, give us a quick update on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, so with the with BookBub, uh, one thing I try to be really careful about, and I, and I know I talked a little bit last week about um, kind of the strange thing I have going on with having all my paid ads turned off and how I've been going off the momentum of BookBub since November, but that that didn't really kick in until January. Um, and so I'm, I'm really careful about like really immediate reactions, like, because to me, I think a lot, it seems like a lot of authors, you know, if they get a book bub, especially if it's like one of their first ones, they'll look like their first day and they judge the whole thing off that. I don't do that. I mean, our, our first day results were, were decent. They, I mean, they definitely weren't what they used to be with book bub. Um, you know, I do have some other like thoughts and stuff. I, I like, and Jay, we'll have to talk about this later and maybe we'll do a topic episode around. I don't know, but I, I, you know, the book that we, had up, I, you know, I kind of wonder if it's really uh, angled the right way in the description and stuff sometimes. And, um, but, but it was good. I mean, the, the first day sales, like I said, they were a little bit less than I thought they were going to be. I think we peaked in the rank. I think the highest I saw it was like 423, um, which was good. Like I, I was hoping we'd get a little bit higher than that. And this was in horror. So this is, you know, a decent category, but not one of their best ones. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens now. Like if the book, we have a little bit more for this campaign, then we're actually going to raise the price to four ninety nine here, I think next week or something. And, um, the this is a book that's in KU. So I'm, I'm, I'm mostly interested that's what's going to happen with the page reads from here on out. Was it um, an individual book or was it a, a it's, it's, a tr it's a cold trilogy. Okay. So we usually sell it for nine ninety nine, and we took it down to 99 cents. And then we're going to go up to just four ninety nine, so because um, that's what I did with my my uh, box set from November, and it sold really well at four ninety nine and has been getting a ton of page reads. So um, we're we're going to try that and see what happens and see if it can stick around for a little bit. I mean, we so. broke even on the ad so yeah. far. So yeah, I mean, it's it did well. I'm just uh, to me, I'm more interested to see what it's going to do now and to see. Um, what what you know if it's going to stick in those rankings and continue to sell for a while so um, it'll be interesting to see and i mean we can give an update you know later on when we kind of see what happens with it so yeah. cool yeah um so i was i was curious because it is it just a trilogy or are there books that come after it or 
second. It's just a trilogy. Standalone. Okay. And you had and the whole trilogy was was part of this the box set yes. for for 99 cents. Yeah. So so is that how how does that work? Like I know normally, you know, authors will discount or do a book bub on just the first book in the series, you know, banking on the the rest of the series. So what what's the thinking behind doing the full trilogy for 99 cents? Like do you, do you have an additional catalog or like back um like other other books that that this is going to lead to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's part of it. I mean, there's there's nothing else that's directly related to this series, um, but it is pretty much on brand with everything else that Jay and I have done. Um, you know, I, I think for, I, I think a lot of it. There are a couple of things, I guess, you could answer your question. Um, for one, I, I know those box sets are a lot more appealing to BookBub, um, and I'm also using this as an experiment to see if I can replicate what I did with my last box set. So, you know, cause that was a complete, that's a six, that was a six book box set and that was the whole series. Um, and, and like I said, that book has given me my best two months I've had in a while. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to kind of see if we can replicate the same thing with this box set and, you know, hopefully people will go into some of our other stuff as well and buy those. Okay, so this is similarly. I mean, if you think about it, like you as an author is is almost like your entire back catalog is um could, could almost be thought of as the other books in the series. Like if you if you think about the way people use BookBub to promote, so you're using this box set to basically turn people on to you as an author, um, hoping they read the box set and then they're going to pick up other other back catalog items, right? Like that's yeah, and and I think we've we've even linked to like the book one in the other series from that box. Okay. So because we we were approaching like Thorn and Bohannon or Bohannon and Thorn as a uh, as sort of a, a brand in itself. So there are three other trilogies that that people could get into if they like this one. Yeah, so that's kind of what I was getting at because I, I love writing standalone books. Um, but yeah, I, I can see it in my sales numbers. The series books are the ones that people really grab onto. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't want to stop writing standalone. So like these kind of things really fascinate me because if I can use a standalone or use a series to turn people onto you know the the other books that they're not that they haven't seen yet. Um, you know that that's that's huge. It's good intel. And what you're saying, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I've had book bubs on the first book of my Empty Body series before. And, um, you, you know, there's five books behind it people can buy. And, you know, one thing that happens a lot when you get a book bub on a series like that is I'll have people, and a lot of times that was like a free book bub. They would get the first book for free and then go ahead and buy all five other books the same day. Right. So, I mean, you definitely do see a pretty good tale on those. But I think kind of the way we approached this was, you know, this is a series we've had out since 2017. It sold really well initially, but the sales on that box set have kind of died. So we were just kind of like, what else do we have to lose? Like, let's just go ahead and make some money on it right now. And we weren't as concerned about like trying to sell the first book for cheap and then get people into the other books. And there's also a, uh, there's also a reader magnet that's part of it. So we wrote a prequel short story, um, that basically takes people up to like the very first of the first book. And so it hopefully will get people onto a mailing list and stuff as well. So it should bring in some new readers that way and people that we can eventually sell to again later. So oh. it, it, it just shows like everything about this industry is just constantly fluid. Like I just noticed you know, we had um, the, the woman we're calling just Jean. We had her on a couple of weeks ago. The, um, the, the book um, that she wrote was called You Should Have Known. You know, it's the basis for the undoing on HBO. I, I just noticed on Amazon they rebranded the book. There's a new cover on it now with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant and they, they retitled it The Undoing. Um, which which is kind of neat, but they didn't release it as a new book. It's still dated, you know, 2014 or whatever. But they're they're trying to capitalize on that. So everybody's always always shifting. Yeah, yeah. What's what's new in your world? 
Oh, I'm I'm doing the Bulgarian Tonight Show next week. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so my I I live in in weird, strange dreamland. Everything everything about my life is just crazy. So yeah, I got that phone call last night. I'm not quite sure how it's going to work yet. I I know it's going to be done over Zoom or Skype or some type of proprietary something or other. Um, I, I'm sure there's a translator involved. Um, but beyond that, I I don't know <laughs> what what's going to happen. But you don't yeah, speak they, Bulgarian. I I don't. Um, and, and I really give those translators a run for their money because, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, they know that I talk fast and you know, I, I try to <laughs> slow it down for them. I really do. Um, but, you know, I've done so many of them at this point. Like sometimes I get a little bit bored and sometimes I'll speed up just to see if they could keep up or I'll drop like a really long paragraph just to see, you know, how, how you know, if I can lose them or not. And, you know, they're, they're phenomenal. Um, I, I just did one for, for Spain um, and, and the woman was somehow, and I don't even understand how her brain is capable of doing this, but she would listen to me in English and as I was still speaking, she was translating it into Spanish for the person on the other end, for the reporter, um, and, and vice versa. So when that person started speaking, she was you know, listening to them in Spanish, and she was telling me in English. So she was listening basically one or two sentences ahead of what her, she was actually saying out loud. Um, and, and she didn't get lost, and she kept it up for, for two hours. It was, it was back-to-back interviews. There was like seven or eight different um, reporters. Um, so yeah, it's, it's phenomenal talent. Um, it, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it's kind of going away because I, you know, between apps and, you know, software, I think this is going to get automated to the point where a computer or our phones are going to be able to do it for us, you know, relatively soon. So it's one of those skill sets that I, I think is, you know, this, this might be like the last generation that does it, but it's incredibly impressive if you can see somebody do it. She probably um, was just typing whatever she wanted. She probably wasn't even typing what you were saying. <laughs> probably. probably just making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know. You can't. You can't tell. Um, I got an email from KDP too. I don't know if you guys caught this, but they're no longer going to support Mobi files. Yeah, yeah. finally. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've got a formatter who does does all that stuff for me, but I, I know Mobi's fairly popular, so I, it surprised me a little bit that they would take it out. But I, I know EPUB is a lot a lot more flexible. I think, uh, as far as I can tell, they were the only re, uh, retailer that was requiring a Mobi. I think everyone else was EPUB. So okay. maybe they just. You know, I always kind of assumed Moby was just like their proprietary thing. Uh, I don't know. Is that the case? I don't think so. I think oh, it okay. came from the Sony readers way back oh, like okay. in the mid 2000s. Yeah. Okay. 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 Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I, I always thought it was like the proprietary thing because as long as I've been into it, they've been the only one that did it. So I was just kind of like, that's, they just need to move to EPUB and <laughs> make it a lot, a little, little bit easier for everybody. Yeah. So it's, it's good to see that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's take care of some business and then we'll get to uh, the interview this week. We want to give a nice big shout out to our wonderful sponsors, uh, Tara and the team over at Kobo Writing Life. And if you're publishing your books wide, you've got to be on Kobo Writing Life because you get to set your price, you keep all your rights, and you get uh, the opportunity to get into their monthly promotional opportunities. And you only do that if you go direct to Kobo, not through an aggregator. So uh, if you're interested, make sure you go on over to KoboWritingLife.com and uh, get your account and get set up and get publishing. We also want to give a nice shout out to all of our patrons. If you're interested in supporting the show through Patreon, you can head on over to Patreon.com slash Writers Inc. Podcast. So, J.D., who is our guest today? This week, we've got Dacre Stoker, um, Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew, a really cool guy, um, and, and probably a, the only member of the Stoker family that's really trying to keep Bram alive. 
um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, it's one of those things, you know, like his, his, the rest of his family, I'm, I'm, it's not that they moved on, but like he, he really focuses a lot of his time and energy on it, which is fantastic because a lot of these things I think would disappear um, if, if somebody wasn't out there doing it. Um, but a fascinating guy to talk to. I mean, he's constantly digging up new information on Bram Stoker. So this should be interesting. I haven't really sat down and talked to him for a couple of years. It's hard to believe it's been that long already, but, but it has. Yeah. And I've got some, uh, some questions I want to ask you after, after we, uh, hear from Dacre because, uh, you know, I know from Zach and I, when you have a co-writing experience, you're kind of, you're kind of bonded with that person. Like there's a, there's a special bond there. So, uh, it'll be curious to kind of hear your take after that. Yes, sir. So here he is, Dacre Stoker. Well, I want to ask you the exact same question I asked James Patterson, which is what's it like writing with JD Barker? Um, first of all, it's, it, it was a pleasure because the guy is um, real, you know, is really focused when it comes to let's, let's discuss something, you know, he's, there's no distractions. He's all there. And uh, it's, it's like, okay, let's, let's talk about, let's do something. Let's, let's flesh something out. Next thing I know, he's back with three chapters already done. The guy's a machine. He is but a machine. If, but, but he's also like, he can, he can just like, I've seen him. We've been together in airports. He's working on James Patterson book while there's all this stuff going on around him. And I'm like, this guy's amazing. But it's like, hey, JD, they just called us to our flight. We got to go. No, no, I got to finish these words. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, he needs a handler, it sounds like. He needs someone to, to get him on the, on the flight in time. Yeah, uh, he's but but you know all that being said, it's it's a it's great experience because he's he's so creative and has so many neat ideas and and the thing just the way see we're very opposite. I don't know with with James Patterson, I understand there were some similarities. I'm a guy that has to build. I'm a retired school teacher, so I an and athletic director where I had foundations for everything. Yes, you know lesson plans weekly, monthly, yearly. Plus, you had to hand them into your superiors at times. That's how I would create my stories. JD, it's all here. He doesn't have to create it on paper or on the computer. It's here. So what was cool is when we worked together, I would sort of give him my, my framework and JD would like go even faster because he doesn't have to create any framework. Yeah. That, that's... But it's an interesting question because the, the compatibility of two different styles when guys work together, that's also to make sure his success with Patterson and with me and Dracul is that it's a great partnership to have to figure out each person's style to make it so. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I'm also a former school teacher and I, I also totally understand the idea of, of planning and, and how important that is. And, and I think you're right. Like, uh, you know, JD and I have talked and, and he, he's not, he's not much of an outliner, but I, I think it's a bit of a mislabel because he's an outliner. It just happens that he has the outline in his head. Uh, so tell me about uh, the status of the tours. I know uh, I love the tours that you do. Uh, I've been have my eye on them for a while. What's 2020, 2021 bring for them? Are you looking at 2022? Where are, where are they right now? Um, you know, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, Transylvania, places associated with, with Bram Stoker and his Dracula is also Vlad Dracula. It's really important to me as I sort of coined the term responsible vampire tourism, but <laughs> we, we, and it works. We, um, we can't actually um, be responsible about going anywhere unless people on our tour are feeling safe. 
And so that means, you know, the countries that people leave from, what are the rules about coming back? What's the rules about going into Transylvania? Um, you know, once the vaccines are more widespread, that should open up things. But we still want to make sure that we're not going anywhere unless people can comfortably go and, and be in our little minivan together, stay in the hotels together, but also get back to their own country and not have to go through a quarantine. You know, right now we know that we can actually arrange a mobile testing unit to come to the, the final hotel in Bucharest, Romania to get a test to get on an airplane the next day and fly home the, and, and show that you've had a test, negative test within 72 hours. But still there's too many unknowns right now. We're, we're kind of looking softly at uh, 2021 and our, and our season is, is short because you only really wanna to go to Transylvania up until mid October, mid to late October because you, you get a, a lot of snowfall up in the mountains and that's one of the attractions. So it doesn't make any sense to say, oh yeah, no problem. We'll go in November, December, January, February, or March when really the season for us is June, July, August, September, October. So it's more likely, Jim, that the tours with uh, this company I'm working with, Experience Transylvania, uh, will probably really take off for sure in 2022. And hopefully the spring or summer, then, then we'll all be clear, safe, and have a wonderful time traveling around looking at some of these great sites associated with both Vlad Dracula as well as where the story Dracula was set. And as you probably know, um, this, this Dutch researcher actually deciphered Bram Stoker's notes and, and uh, JD and I used that in our story Dracul as the coordinates, which they really are, for the fictional castle Dracula. I have now been to that location twice now, and I've been to it under the auspices of Let's find a new tourist trail in Transylvania. The uh, National Park, where this mountain is actually located, Mount Israel in the Kalamari National Park, helped me put up a plaque, lots of press. So now there's one more cool place to go in Transylvania besides Brand Castle and these others. We've got the site of Bram Stoker's fictional castle, where near the Borgo Pass, next to Bukovina, and it's, and it's just as I'd analyzed the notes with JD and chose to set our story and kind of have hints that Dracul was taking place in this sort of mysterious area that we put some Easter eggs that this really was based on what Bram discovered. And that's what I love to take people back to. Oh, I love that. I love, I love how you fold the geography into the storytelling. Uh, and, and when I was doing some research on you, um, I was fascinated by this idea, and I don't know if the coordinates match up, but I know you talked about this previously, this idea of volcanoes and the, the, the symbolism of volcanoes with the, with the vampire. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you're absolutely right. It does match up. And, and the, the, even since I've written Dracul, I found more evidence that Bram was certainly looking for a suitable location for the devil. And the research books that he used in the London Library that we've now found, incidentally, with his handwriting in the margins, <laughs> um, show that he was focused on things like the myths of the time. Victorians uh, believed that the volcanoes were portals to the center of the earth, to hell. And funnily enough, these coordinates do place the fictional castle Dracula on Mount Israel, which is an extinct volcano. And the relevancy of that is that when JD and I 
analyzed the Dracula typescript owned by Paul Allen, it shows that Bram originally planned to have a volcanic eruption at the end of Dracula, right after the Count had the, the knife, the Bowie knife, thrust into his chest. A massive volcano erupted. So knowing what I know about Bram Stoker, he was so detail-oriented that his inclination would be, if I'm going to have a volcanic eruption, I'm going to make darn sure that this castle is on a real volcano, and Mount Israel certainly was. So, yeah, it's, it's cool to see full circle and bringing the reality, blending it with the fiction, the natural and the supernatural world. That's, that's the trick. You know, that's what Bram did, and that's what JD and I have done really quite well. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and, and I think, too, it's, that's always a, a tricky balance for writers, uh, this idea of preparation or planning and research versus creating the word. So what is, do you have a research process? And if you do, what does that look like? Well, it's fairly, I mean, it's not simple. But it's to me, the starting point is simple. The, the, the two novels that I've co-authored are all focused around Bram Stoker's writing of Dracula. So it's analyzing all of the material that he used, his notes, the Dracula typescript, the journal I found of his, and also what other people have said about him, not just other scholars, but even the obituaries, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, what I need to get into Bram Stoker's head, understand how he's wired, much like I did as a school teacher or an athletic coach to get the best out of people, as, as you, I'm sure you did yourself. It's a sort of a, it's the technique to get, you know, into these people to figure them out. So that was the first thing. And so getting to know Bram Stoker's process by analyzing his notes was really helpful to me because what I need to do is say, okay, where did he get that information? And let me follow up on that. Because I know he didn't write everything in his notebook, which was only what has been found is only 125 pages. We have since found 28 books wow. in the London Library that he that he wrote notes in the margins and extracted stuff from. That doesn't mean that he didn't think of the other stuff that's in those books. He just didn't write them down. And then I found the whole list of books that was in his personal library that his wife sold two years after he died. So I've gone back to some of those books. Now, some of them have nothing to do with Dracula. But one of the things that I found was in the Trinity College archives, his son gave a full account to an early biographer, Harry Ludlam, about his father's process writing books, that he read everything he could on the subject. And he had a lot of books about supernatural, um, Eastern Europe, not just Transylvania, but, but also another book he wrote all about um, Jewel of Seven Stars. He, he had a ton of information about Egypt. So, you know, you, you take it in, 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 uh, in, in put it in, in a sort of context of what was, what was he studying, what was he interested in, and I do the same thing and go to great lengths to find out what was in his wheelhouse. And then I extract what I need. And in the case of working with JD, it's like, okay, JD, here is our own universe. Let's look at this newspaper, this town, this location where he was in. Let me get all the nitty gritty about this library where Bram really studied in. Now we want to place a scene in that library. Let me get all the history, the ins and outs. How can JD use that in a, what might end up in a, you know, one half of a chapter. And I've spent 10 hours researching it, but it's pure gold. Yeah. And that's what makes the story come alive. It's that specificity. So I, I agree. It's worth the investment. Uh, 
That's that's yeah. fascinating to hear. I, I wanted is. to congratulate you on the Kickstarter. As of recording this, you guys funded uh, First Edition's Dracula, hand antiqued reproductions of First Edition classics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And can people still back it? Yes, it's actually, uh, I think it's going until um, April 4th or something like that. Um, so here's, here's the deal. I met this guy, Vic Nadata of Gemini Artifacts. He's uh, a master of creating stage props and theatrical props, but he's also a magician and he needs to make props for magic and he makes them for people to, to sell them to do shows. So he makes really authentic looking stuff. And he made a an, an, uh, first edition American copy of Dracula and he sold that through actually through through a, a bookstore chain and then he came to me and said you know do you want to do this 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 project um what about some of bram stoker's original papers so we did we did that one first which was called unearthed and it's all these early documents that that i've collected and got licenses to from different archives libraries private collections all over the world and it's and it's you know like 50 pages of cool stuff that bram used to write dracula but then he said now let's really do, you know, the first edition of Dracula, but the UK edition. I said, you wouldn't believe what I have. I said, I actually have in my possession. And it's, it's so, you know, I, I pause about it, Jim, to think about it. This is a first edition Dracula that Bram Stoker had in his possession before it was published. So probably in those days, I don't know if they called them, um, you know, the galleys but it was the perfect edition. We know that because there's no advertising in the back. He signed it and handed it to his mom. His mother then read it and she wrote two very famous letters to him based on her reading of that. Obviously, you know, she was impressed with it. She saw reviews. She was telling her son, what a good job. You know, nobody since Shelley has done anything like this and you're going to be famous like Poe, blah, blah, blah. But it goes further because it was then passed on from Bram Stoker's mom to one of Bram's other brothers, Richard Stoker, who was on his way or about to leave to go to Australia. He was a doctor working in India, came back to Ireland, but then he was this, he just liked to travel and be posted in remote places. And instead of going to Australia, they got off, him and his wife got off the boat in Victoria, British Columbia and stayed there. They just loved it. The remote nature, he was also into botany. He signed the book and the date and then when he passed away, his wife got the book and signed it and put the, the name of the town that she was in. And then the mystery of like 50 years, it ends up, I don't know how it got to my father in Montreal, Canada, and he left it to me when he passed away. And so now I have it. And it was like, well, Vic, if we're going to reproduce a book, it's got to be this one because it's the authentic Bram Stoker Stoker family uh, version. And so Vic comes down and, and, and he does all these really cool things, Jim, which is actually a very complicated process. You know, I thought, okay, yeah, what do you do? Send it off to somebody and they do a, a bunch of photocopying and you come back with what you say is like an authentic book. But, but no, he's, he's got to do very intricate measurements. He's got to analyze the actual paper to make sure he can still get paper that was used in the publishing business back in 1897, which, which you can, it's amazing, but you can, um, there, this is apparently this industry of either repairing old things. It's kind of like repairing old paintings. Oh, right. That, that, that's that, that same 
amount of fibers and thicknesses and edging. All that stuff exists in this book. So he's He's gone the nth degree to make sure he gets all of that. But he also photographs every page to make sure that the foxing, you know, that those little brown spots, like like age spots on, uh, on somebody's hand, that happens in books. And he wants to get that same foxing applied to the reproduced book on, you know, what, what is new but old style pages. He's got to make it look old. So there is... This huge process that is not just photocopying stuff. It's also um, somewhat secret because he won't even tell me. Like it's like the Colonel Sanders, you know, the secret recipe or the McDonald's sauce for the for the Big Mac. He's going to take that to his grave because it's proprietary. He's invented it, but it's it's how you age the cover, how you age the pages, where it sits in his home in Charlotte, North Carolina, under certain conditions, um, you know, hitting it with certain things like using emery boards and different types of sandpaper just the right way. Because when he looked at my book, he saw on the spine, there were some obviously rough edges. There was a little tearing. He's going to reproduce that the same way. What an amazing project. Wow. Yeah, it's it, it's cool. And and people have really risen to it. We, we, we realized that there are price points in all this stuff. So what we're doing is offering the virgin book, which is a reproduced book with the same paper, the same look, the same size and everything, but without the foxing, without the antiquing. Um, and that's like a hundred dollars. And quite honestly, we don't make much money on one of those. It's when you get into the labor intensive work that you get paid for, um, and that doesn't obviously cost you. It's your time and effort. So that's where you make a little more profit. And that's $250 for that process. Um, but it takes, you know, a couple of weeks to get one of those done. And he can work on about, he said, about nine books at a time with, with his setup in his studio in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow. He, he also, have, Jim, have you ever smelt, have you ever picked up a really old book and smelt it? Yes. How do you how do you describe that smell? Oh. Can you without putting you on the spot? No, I can't. Like it's 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 unique. It's it's some combination of it's a bit of must, a little bit of dust, uh, sometimes dry. I, I don't know. That's that's a tough question. It's it's you know it, it, I don't know if it's like a Seinfeld episode when Kramer came back and said you know I want to create a cologne that smells like the beach. You know, what <laughs> what's the beach smell like? It, right. It depends what kind of lotion you use. Is that, you know, heavy salt water, whatever. In, in this case, he's, he's been able to sort of take the smell, and I can't tell you what he's purchased to do it, because that would be, uh, he, he said, I can't, can't give away all the secrets. But he has figured out a couple of scents that he's been able to combine to create that smell. Now, you know, it's, it's maybe one of many, but you're absolutely right. There's mustiness. There is, you know, some dust. In the case of 1897, and, and, I'll, and I'll jump to this as well, you know, there used to be dust covers in all these books. And dust covers of old books are very rare because they were just that. When, when I went to the bookseller and said, I'd like that copy of Dracula, please, sir. He'd reach on his shelf, take off, take the book out of the shelf, take off the dust cover, crumple it up and throw it in the bin. And then hand me, a very clean, fresh looking book. It wouldn't have 
the soot on it that you'd normally expect from either a store that has coal burning stove to keep you warm or the soot from outside comes in like like pollen would you know so we've actually decided to create and give everybody for free a dust jacket for both of the books we know for sure that oh no i don't say for sure i i only know with my lot knowledge that there are two dust jackets in existence one in a private collection and one at the Rosenbach Museum of the 19, uh, 1897 UK edition. We don't know if the American edition ever had a dust jacket, but we do know the British one did. And so we're, for, for making history, we're recreating the British one, but we're also doing the same with the American one. And everybody gets a cool piece of history, but it also gives us a chance in those kind of side flaps to tell that story and why it's so unique and kind of give also the story of this is the book passed on down from Bram Stoker to Charlotte Stoker, to Richard Stoker, to Susan Stoker, to Desmond Stoker, then to Dacre Stoker. Wow. Uh, there's so many <laughs> stories upon stories. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely have a link in the show notes for people to, to go and check that out. Um, you have some time if you want to, if you want to support that Kickstarter, um, definitely, definitely do that. Uh, you, but th this Kickstarter isn't the only, uh, Dracula property that you're you're experimenting with. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your graphic novel project? Wow, this, this this is almost as foreign to me, but you know my feelers are out there because it's it's a cool process, and I find experts like you know like writing a really good suspenseful horror novel about Dracula. I find J.D. Barker to help out, and and when I go to Vic Nadada to do to do this project with the first edition reproductions, uh, I've gone to a fellow called Chris McCauley, who's an Irishman living in Canada, and we've put together a group of people that involve artists and letterers and, and pencilers and, and inkers to adapt some of Bram Stoker's uh, short stories into graphic novels. I, I just feel, Jim, that um, the, the world is becoming more visual. Comics and graphic novels are, are getting very popular, and especially as a way to bring some of Bram Stoker's lesser known stories out and off the shelves and, and into the, the world, either digitally or hard copy, to people that would maybe not normally um, read him. And it's a process which I'll just you know, very quickly go through because I had no idea it involved this number of steps. And, and we've got one coming out, which is uh, Bram's story called The Squaw. And, and we've, you know, we have to be socially conscious about many things that were written back in 18, 1890s we've changed the name to The Virgin's Embrace. And it's all about the honeymoon of two, two young British people. And it really appears to me that it's semi-autobiographical, that it's Bram and his, and, and his young wife, um, Florence. But it's, it's them going to Nuremberg for their honeymoon and running into an incident with this Iron Maiden, the Virgin, the, the, the torture device. But what has to be done is you got to read the story so I go read the story and I highlight all the important parts of the story that I think that when you reduce the word count from, you know, X to six panels on 20 pages, how do you get the essence of the story? So you have to then create a script. And that's where Chris McCauley comes in. I give him all the important part of the story that I think is important. He then creates a script. We then agree on that and just read it and get my wife to read it, get my son to read it read the script, do you still get the essence of the story? 
So then we go through that and we actually hand it to a friend of ours, an artist who just does the storyboard, just very naive stuff, storyboards it out. They've got to take our words, our script, and create storyboards just like somebody would for a film. And then what we have to do is start hitting, is it accurate? You know, is the train station in Nuremberg the right way that the train station really was back in the 1800s? So just like I would work with JD, I go and check all the historical accuracy of the stuff. And then we hand that off and we describe it. And maybe I even get pictures or I go to eBay and get postcards, which is a cool way to find out what the world looked like back in those days is buying postcards on eBay to give concept art to these artists. So then the artist actually takes that plus the storyboards and starts sketching it out. Once they've done that and we like it, oh no, Bram doesn't look that way or oh, that's not the right clothing for that period. Then they get it and then they ink it. Sometimes it's a different inker. Once that's done, they have to then get into the shading process to give right the 3D sort of feel to it. Once we do that, then we actually may go back and say, okay, to tell the story right with just the right pace of the story is that the six panel is kind of a golden rule for graphic novels, either six panels, or if you want the story, if you want longer panels, you may get four. And then sometimes you decide, do you want what's called a splash page, which is, you know, some very emotional thing, maybe one whole page, you know, some guy getting his head ripped off or something, you know, Bob, but then, that kind of that almost wastes the page unless it's really worth it. Uh, and then you move on to figure where the dialogue boxes are going to go and where the rest of the story in the little boxes go. And you can't, it's a different person that does this. You've you got to make sure you don't cover too much of the art up. So in our latest one, The Virgin's Embrace, um, this lady, Bonnie Dixon, did this. And she would actually put the, some of those little bars with the words in it on, the, on a building or on, the, on somewhere a sidewalk or something so it wouldn't interfere with the really good art that Jessica Martin did on, on that work. So it's a, it's, it's a massive team effort. And I, you know, I didn't realize that when JD and I were doing work, it was me and JD and my wife is a researcher, then the copy editor, everything else is done with the publisher. I don't really don't see the layout and all that stuff. But with the graphic novel, we see that all ourselves before we deliver it over to the publisher who then has their people format it right for the pages, formats different for digital, different for print. The cover art is a whole nother thing. It's gotta be really cool, catchy cover art, but you gotta have room for the barcodes and all the other legal kind of stuff. So that's a nutshell, Jim, about one of the other ventures. Uh, I love learning new stuff and uh, we've got plans to kind of do, you know, six to 10 more of brand story, but this one should be out uh, sometime um, at the end of end of April or early May. That's our. That's oh, our okay. Goal. So that's on the near horizon then. Oh yeah, yeah. We've we're we're almost or almost done. About to hand it over to the publisher. Fantastic. Well, uh, Daker, I'm so impressed with your ability to kind of see tangential opportunities, and I think it may be a nice way to to wrap up our conversation. Would be uh, if I'm uh, if I'm the listener and I'm and I'm uh, uh, an author and I'm thinking, wow, I. I would love to sort of step to the side maybe and explore some of these other opportunities for storytelling, uh, whether that's graphic novels or, or Kickstarter campaigns. What's, what's one thing an author can do or what might be a good starting point to kind of start to move in this direction and think more about intellectual property beyond the, the, the words on the page? 
That that's a that's a really good question, and uh, you know, I guess it depends on how much money you want to spend. You know, you could call up, you know, an agent that can lead you through this. But the other thing is, you know, JD and I are members of, uh, as you are, Horror Writers Association, and you know, there's tremendous resources within writers groups like this to say, hey, can, can you can you give me ten minutes on the phone, or better yet, if there are actually breakout rooms. And and uh, at conferences where they talk about these things, you know, I, I learned years ago. I was in Ireland at a conference where I was actually presenting, but I thought, oh, I want I want to go to this one where a guy's talking about how to turn your book into uh, a screenplay. And it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably never going to do that, but I learned an awful lot about the process, so I'm better versed when, as as Dracul has been purchased, uh, the film rights. That when it does, when, when we, JD and I get to look at the script, I'm a little better versed in how it's done so I can ask better questions. So it's, um, you know, going on the Internet, looking for these questions. Um, Horror Writers Association and other groups like that uh, are really good resources. But it's also where does your passion take you? Because it's going to be time involved time on this. You know, if you really want to go the graphic novels, figure out where that is. One other avenue I'm now going into is is, is um, audiobook, you know, having, not necessarily reading myself, but getting celebrities to read excerpts from some of our stories and bundling it together and having sort of a, a story told with five or six celebrities. And that, again, that's a learning process. How is that done? Well, it just happens that Andrew's UK Publishing does this with us. And so I'm on the phone for hours with this guy. How is it done? What equipment do you have to have? What does it cost? How much can you make? Because it's all easy if you if you just want to get something done and don't worry about how much you make at the end of the day. But we all need to pay the bills. So along the way, everybody makes a little something. And if you can um, be patient with that and look at the bigger picture, it may be profitable for yourself as well. All right, JD, give us some dirt on Daker. <laughs> Man, it, that just brings back memories, you know, because it, I, I need to check the dates, but I'm guessing it was around 2015 while we were, when we were working on that book. Um, and, you know, we were constantly on the phone with each other. Um, he's such a, a nice guy. You know, he's Canadian. I think all Canadians are nice. Like, I, I think they boot you out of there, that country if, if you're not. Um, but extremely friendly um, and just a wealth of knowledge when it, when it comes to, to Bram. Um, you know, he, he knew like literally everything that like if I needed to know what Bram Stoker's bedroom looked like when he was six years old, like he knew, like he knew what furniture was in there. He knew how the room was set up, you know, crazy things like that. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating connection, you know, like I, I, I just think of the generations and there haven't been that many, but still to kind of have like that direct line to Bram Stoker is a real rarity in, in, in just literature in general. Yeah, well, I can tell you after going to um, Ireland with them, he's a rock star over there. You know, like they've got like we were there for Bram Stoker Day. <laughs> you know, like we we go to the the horror writers convention, you know, which is called StokerCon, and he actually calls it MyCon, uh, just as as a joke. Um, but yeah, like o over there, he's he's huge. Um, and w one of the things he brought up, and I, I totally forgot about this, but like in Bram Stoker's notes, like Bram actually wrote down the latitude and longitude of of Dracula's castle, like where he felt it really was in in real life. Um, which you know, Dacre has he actually hiked up there with his son, and they put a plaque up there when they they actually found it. And um, one of the coolest things that we saw when we we went through 
through the original manuscript was the original ending um, because it was changed. So in the original ending of Dracula, the you know they, they kill Dracula and the castle a, a volcano erupts and destroys the castle and kills like absolutely everybody. Um, and, and it's funny because in the manuscript, like this is all crossed out and, you know, it's changed to the, the ending that, you know, we know where they, they stab Dracula with, with a knife. Like, first of all, who kills a vampire with a knife? Um, and then they, you know, they take out all the volcano references. So I'm, I'm guessing his publisher went through that and said, you know, if this sells well, we, we may want to write a sequel. So this is a little, you know, we, we need to leave a little opening here. So let's just go ahead and take this out. That, that's, that's kind of the vibe we got. Um, JD with the Dracula spoiler. Yeah, I was Dracula's about to say spoiler. that. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know if do it. <laughs> I I don't know if that's um, I, I'm guessing that's public. Like you can probably search the internet. I'm guessing those pages are visible somewhere. Um, it's public I'm, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is now. Sorry, sorry, Bram. Um, yeah, I mean that that kind of stuff. I just I I mean it was just really cool to to actually see in real life. One one of the other things that we found, um, we went to Marsh's Library in in Dublin. Um, which is this ridiculously old library. They, you know, the texts that they have there, they were all donated, um, you know, many, many years ago, you know, centuries ago. Um, and whenever you check out a book, you can't actually leave the library with you. They, they, they lock you in a cage to read the book. Um, and this dates all the way back to Bram's days. So when he went there, you know, this was right down the street from Trinity um, College where he went to, when he, where he went to school. Um, he would go there after class and he would get locked in these cages with, with books. And one of the things that, that Dacre found there was a, a really old manuscript and I forget the exact dates on it um, but Bram went through it and he underlined some passages about uh, Dracul um, and not Vlad Dracul about Dracul because it actually means devil um, and, and he was only 19 when he did this so like this is text that he you know like he was researching Dracula and, and Dracul and like all of this stuff when he was 19 years old and he didn't actually start writing that book until he was in his 40s you know so this was a, a lifelong passion of his um, my, my favorite part of Dracul, the book that we wrote together, honestly, is the author's note at the end, because, you know, so much of what we put in that book is true. And, you know, it feels, you know, 100% like fiction. And in the author's note, we actually tell you what parts are true, and it, it, it will blow your mind. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's funny. One thing that, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I, I found really interesting, I'm, I'm a little envious of, honestly, was, um, man, I wish that I loved to do research half as much as Dacre seems to <laughs> like, I, I despise doing research. Like I just don't like it, but I really wish I did. <laughs> and, and that was a really interesting and, and for some, for a project like that, I mean, obviously um, you, you have to, I mean, you, you have to, you would have to do really deep research like the two of you did, but I, I just thought it was really interesting hearing him talk about a lot of the different things he's done to kind of unfold his family's legacy and stuff. I thought that was uh that was really interesting. I also really liked how um, I thought the whole thing with the first edition he owns was amazing. I mean, that was, that's crazy <laughs> that he has uh, Bram's like actual copy that he had before the book is even published. And um, you know, the whole thing is mom told him where, where she said, you know, you uh, you're going to be famous. No one's done anything like this at Shelley. Like how true is that today now? I mean, when you think of, uh, you know, the you think of Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker kind of like hand in hand and Dracula and Frankenstein and stuff. And it's just really, really fascinating when you th when you really think about it in hindsight. Well, that made me question a lot of what I do it, you know, as an author, because, you know, Bram never actually saw Dracula pop as a popular book. It, it didn't really take off until long after he died. Um, you know, so he, he had no idea that it was going to become what it did. You know, so we, we got to see a lot of these things in hindsight. Like the, the only known copy of the, the original manuscript was found in a barn in Pennsylvania. 
Um, you know, so, you know, like these things are just kind of scattered everywhere. And, and just even the things that, that Dacre has found, you know, he's found them in attics at family, you know, family homes, um, you know, up on shelves, like long forgotten, like, you know, things that have been sitting there for a hundred years. Um, so it makes you question, you know, like, wh- like, what do you guys do with you know, your, your manuscripts, you know, when, when they're done, like, do you actually keep them? Do you print them out? Do you throw everything away as you go? Um, you know, because Bram, you know, he, he, you know, he wouldn't have known what was going to happen, but you know, like every scrap of paper related to that book is, is worth, you know, some serious coin in today's world. It's a, you know, collectors are, are really after that stuff. I mean, in my office here, I've got a copy of, um, needful things from Stephen King. It's, it's the actual pages office typewriter. Um, I, I'm pretty sure when he wrote that, he didn't think it was going to end up in JD Barker's office, you know, but you know, so like, it, it really makes you question like what happens with all that stuff. Like for me personally, after working on this, this project, I started boxing all those things up and I just, I keep them in our attic, you know, and it's either going to become kindling for a fire one day or my daughter might end up selling it. But like, I just, I can't bring myself to throw it away. Like I, I did before. Well, it's interesting too, because we also live in a different time. Like I've never printed a manuscript. <laughs> So, so I think that's something to think about too. Like all my stuff lives on my computer and in Dropbox. So it's, you know, it's just kind of a, it's, that could be just kind of like a lost, uh, not art, but you know what I'm saying? Like a thing that. Well, your daughter could turn them into nifties and sell them for millions of dollars. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope she can. I hope that they are worth something like that one day. (laughs) Believe me. I really, I, I also really love that Dacre, uh, is a really sort of forward thinking guy. I mean, the whole Kickstarter yeah. uh, project is fascinating. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I ordered a copy and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting that. Um, and, and I'm hoping that they continue it and do other, other classic books along the same, same vein, because I'd love to just load up a shelf with, with all the classics, but you know, books that actually look like them. Uh, I'm not sure where the line there is between those and forgeries. I'm, I'm guessing that there's some kind of little stamp up in the corner of the book somewhere that tells you this is not real. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good of, point. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can see these showing up. On, I mean, cause that, that's a huge market. I mean, we talked about this before, like I've, I've been in the market for a first edition Dracula and they're anywhere from 20 to $50,000, depending on condition. Um, you know, there, there's authenticators involved in that. There's, you know, a, a slew of people that have to look at it to make sure it's real. So I'm not quite sure how something like this fits into that. Um, but I'm, I'm totally on board with buying one and putting it up on my shelf. Yeah, for sure. I want to so, see the, I want a Kickstarter for draw cool. That looks like it came out in 2018. I want it <laughs> aged. You want to age it. I've got a garage going up outside. I'll just bury a few of them out there and then dig them up. I was going to say, I see them behind you there. Just go bury some, you know. Yeah, you can't have a movie tie-in cover on those. That'll totally ruin it. Now, something else that Dacre brought up that's a a really old tradition that's kind of faded away. um, People used to sign books, you know, because hardcovers were... Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, they were harder to find. So, like, if you borrowed a book from your friend or from the library or wherever, like, people would sign it and sometimes they would date it in the back. Um, And my mom, you know, owns an antique store and she used to buy books you know by the box you know from estate sales and things like that and i've gotten some really cool first editions out of boxes like that and and one of them is a, a charles dickens um oh god i can't remember which one it was it wasn't great expectations um david copperfield um but it but it had all these signatures in the back and like the first time i saw that it really made me think like you know books once they're printed they kind of have a life of their own because like that particular book it had signatures dating back almost 100 years in there from people that read it you know literally all over the world so this book has bounced all over the place and and like now it's on on my shelf um so whenever anybody borrows a book from from us from our house here we always ask them to, to sign the back and date it um, awesome. just, just, a yeah, just so we have that because you just, you never know who's going to look at it, you know, a hundred years from now, if anybody yeah, that, does, but it's just neat to see. Yeah. yeah. That was something I was curious about when he mentioned he got the book from his dad. That was the first question. I wonder if his dad signed it, 
that was mm-hmm. like the first question that came to my mind because I thought that was thought that was really cool. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, excellent, man. That was a a great great conversation with Daker, as you said, JD. Just a a wonderful guy, and uh, definitely put him into our uh, Canadian Friends Hall of Fame along with uh, Mark <laughs> Leslie Lefebvre and Tara from Kobo because we love we love our Canadians. So. Uh, who who's up for next week? We love we get, our what, Canadians. Yeah, we do. We love our Canadians. Uh, I don't know, what's I, up for next week? Uh, I believe we got a topic based episode, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, Zach's gonna pitch us some ideas, and then we'll we'll come back uh, we'll come back next week and talk about something related to the industry. So put all, all right. the pressure on me, of course. All on you, man. <laughs> better better be good. Damn it. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, all right. If you can't well, come up with anything, I'll just I'll record these guys pouring the foundation for my garage, and we'll just play yeah, that for yeah. Minutes. Construction noise works. That totally. would be actually a great. You know uh, what? The uh, April Fool's Day is coming up, so maybe that's what we should have posted for April Fool's Day. <laughs> the whole episode is just a cement truck in JD's backyard. <laughs> that would be like uh, I don't know if you guys heard, but a couple weeks ago, Snoop Dogg was did a like a charity stream for Madden, playing Madden the Madden video game. And he got really mad and just quit, but forgot to turn the stream off. So it just ran for like seven hours while he was in this house doing other stuff. <laughs> That's what it would be like just here in the cement pool. I, I, I would, I would pay to listen into Snoop Dogg's house for a day. That's that. <laughs> oh yeah, I would too. I'd <laughs> That's got to that. be entertaining stuff. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. Uh, all right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com. Grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.